Besides foresight, poor eyesight, couldn't fist fight, had to overcompensate. Learn to be clairvoyant, see around corners, read signals and warnings, interpret omens, respond accordingly. To- Broadcast from later, we are exchanging weak signals of change and trying to understand their significance. A weak signal of change is just something that we notice. It could be an event, an idea, an issue, some sort of development that we don't fully understand yet, but we suspect it might be meaningful in shaping the futures of our lives and society. As foresight strategists tip from later, we're steady tracking and trying to make sense of what's changing. And on broadcasts like this one, we're giving a glimpse of what it looks like when you're trying to understand something you don't know anything about. It's basically structured like a show and tell. We bring in a signal. The rest of us do not know what that item is in advance. And collectively, we're trying to make sense of the newest stuff we know about. If you're listening and you feel lost, you don't understand what we're talking about. That's not a problem. We don't either. We don't know anything. We're figuring it out as we go. So today on the Vroom call, we've got a new rotation. Sydney Allen, Ash, Sam Venus, Miranda Show, all family from later, our producers, Jeremy and Serena, and I'm Robert Bolton. And I thought today I'd warm us up by giving a signal, which I rarely do. So special times. Welcome, everybody, by the way. It's been a minute since we've, well, Sid and Sam and I have done this together, Miranda's first time. So welcome. So I'll go. Uh, I've been interested in this idea of interspecies interfacing, as we've been referring to it. Um, how do we communicate or interface with different species? And my signal is something called Deep Squeak, which is this deep learning based system for detecting and analyzing ultrasonic vocalizations, the sounds that animals make and that might be ways of communicating. So Deep Squeak is able to like, detect using a lot of special equipment, microphones and whatnot, but different call types from different animal species. It's this machine learning software, and they've mostly been using it with rodents recently. And I think it's like rats is the type that's been talked about, but they've been using it for underwater creatures, whales, all of these things. And it basically can uh, identify subtle patterns. And they've got scientists that are now starting to identify like the syntax and grammar of these different species and identify the different sounds and the meanings that they may be making. At the same time, it's been a big year for this field of bioacoustics and been a a number of different studies that have been coming out. So among those, there's been, well, the ones that I mentioned and there's also like an app that came out recently called Meow Talk. Anybody hear about about this one? I actually just sit on my cat and? <laughs> multiple times and it worked quite well. Like there's no way to really justify how accurate it is, but based on the context, for example, when my cat was really relaxed and I used that app, uh, it basically shows, oh, please knock me. I'm really comfortable, things like that. I like that kind of communication. Yeah. There's also the um, little sound boards for dogs. They're like little kind of keyboards for dogs. The idea being that the dog gets trained to click on some of these buttons and each button says a word in, in human words. And it's a way for the dog to communicate what it wants in some way. And the videos are always like, you know, the owners are just sitting around on their laptop and then the dog goes up and it's like, clicks the button, like hug me or like 
love you or like, hi, mom, or something like that, you know, and people are like, oh, my God, he's talking to me, you know, so I don't know if this is this isn't exactly what you're saying, but it is in the same world of like technological bridges between animals and humans. Yeah, totally. That's really interesting. I'm always suspicious of those kind of tools because, for example, you know, a lot of families will put the bells on like the doors, which is supposed to be like a way for dogs to indicate that they need to go outside, which my parents did. So the dog realized this and then just kept on going to ring the bell. And what they realized over time is that the dog didn't actually need to go out. It just was like looking for attention. It wasn't actually expressing its need. It was just like kind of expressing a sense of power over my parents. (laughs) It's really the dog was just training them. It's actually what was happening. I feel like this also reminds me of you guys have seen the clips attached to like a little synthesizer or something that go on like leaves or mushrooms or something and it like plays music from Mm -hmm. mushrooms like I feel like these things are all kind of tangentially connected in some way I just don't feel like any of this is actually like this is what the animals are saying like even Robin the example that you gave it's like okay there's sounds and these sounds mean something and these sounds mean something but is any of it getting to to coherence like we're communicating I mean, it's a really interesting question. So, I mean, I think at some level, there are things that we can pretty well communicate um, or at least understand from other species. Like we could infer that we can understand their sounds. Yeah. Like I'm in pain, for example, or, um, or something that's more happy. There's also like sounds between species, like among one species rather, where it would be like, it's clearly a greeting or something mm. based on context, right? Okay. So there's things like that that you can get. And then the question is whether this idea, I guess, of breaking it down to like syllables and whatnot will be productive or not. The other thing that they're working on that I think is really fascinating is like even the assumption of language, like that we even would be talking about syllables and syntax may be wrong. So like, you know, I'm happy, I'm sad is like affective state, right? We can get that, but that doesn't necessarily come from like language as we conceive of it that's broken down. So there's like this other question of like, what is it? What is the experience of communication? So even like language is probably the wrong lens, you know, but this other question of, okay, is it more like hearing a song, right? Mm -hmm. Or is it more like, you know, something else altogether? Is it more like a sigh of relief or a laugh? You know, yeah, are it they could be words like words or are they just like sonic expressions? But even beyond that, like, is it more like an image or is it more like some weirder stuff, right? right? Is it more like a 3D model or something that they're experiencing, even though it's it's a sound, right? As far as we can understand it through physics, it's a sound. But these are also like, in some cases, like whales, like their dominant sense is like they can see, right? Just as we can see in here, but people that we can consider a dominant sense to be, especially of space to be our eyes. Whereas for like a whale, it would be acoustic space, right? Yeah. This, uh, this other way. So what does that even mean for communication of audio? Like it could be something very different, you know, maybe something we cannot imagine, but maybe something we sort of know about, but wouldn't think of as how we communicate regularly. Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like this, this also brings up for me, like the, I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like I hear people say like, 
oh, cats only meow because they're mimicking human speech. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I don't care that much about cats to find out, but I don't know if that's applicable to to whales where we've had significantly less contact with them than we have with cats. But that just comes to mind based on what you said, like we're imposing our understanding of communication onto animals that don't necessarily even use communication in ways that we can conceive of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's true of anything that like rushes anyways to say that we understand. Mm-hmm. Um, although the cat one's kind of fun, like the translations, like the, I don't know, I listened to a sound in this, in an article that claimed that it was like, can we go somewhere private or something? <laughs> from like it's a meow it's like claim like that's the yeah (laughs) i have to say i was surprised when my cat first time was able to kind of almost mimic my language saying hello in the morning when she wants food and it's a really clear hello Uh, (laughs) which is really interesting i think because i have a simi's cat and she's really vocal and she would voice lots of different needs as certain contexts in terms of food or even water that you can tell a difference when you spend more time with them. So I feel like for domesticated animals or our pets, they might have ability to mimic like the birds too. You're using the cat app, Meow Talk. Is it helping? Are you conversing? I should feel I become more empathetic to how my pet feels after using that app i still frequently use that app sometimes when i try to figure out what happened to molly i was able to get a kind of basic understanding afterwards using that app to diagnose if she doesn't feel really comfortable or she got hurt or she just want food at a certain moment which was really helpful i feel like it gets at rob's idea of the sort of like different dimensionality of the sound It's like in human communication, how, of course, there's like the very direct, like request element of language of like, I need, there's like the command component of it. But then so much of like when we're speaking is associated, like this word is actually far more than just the word itself. It's like, you've got that, like a long string of images and genealogy connected to it. And in the context of a whale or some other animals, like communicating sonically, we can observe the direct sort of command element of animals' language in pretty obvious ways. Like maybe that's why this like meow app kind of works. But there's like this other layer of abstraction, which we don't typically ascribe to animals. This sort of like dimensionality of the sound gets at that they're actually like, there's this other layer of complexity that goes beyond just this like, command component like it's it is the abstraction that maybe other animals of its kind like are able to to understand i'm taking beginner level spanish classes right now and basically all i can say is like my name where i live where is the bathroom oh this thing is beside that thing you know so basically like what we can understand in cats or maybe in whales or something is the extent to which I can understand someone else in Spanish right now, you know, like very explicit, tangible things in some ways, you know, like not uh, what Sam was just saying, you know, these kind of more abstract 
abstractions that we don't necessarily associate with animals uh intellect i think that's really interesting with what miranda was saying that it like is making it easier to empathize with tools like this there's this like is it like a calculator where it just gives you an answer which like some translation devices could be versus an abacus where it like helps you learn as you go which maybe just depends on intention with certain tools as well but in this case, it, like, it sounds like from Miranda, it's more on the abacus side. It's helping, but mostly because of your overall curiosity and like efforts, you're getting to communicate better with the cat overall. Yeah, I definitely think so. I have a feeling where I actually also explored some sonic activities with other species where the sound actually shows up the metabolic activities inside them instead of communicating certain feelings or activities so i totally agree with rob that there are this sonic expressions from different species may not just describe certain linguistic kind of expression but also it can be an activity or can be a structure or system i would argue also that the meow talk example I feel like part of the reason that it's making you feel more empathetic is because it's suggesting that your animal is feeling these complex emotions and wanting to express these complex feelings to you, you know, whether or not it actually is or it isn't. I feel like what the app is provoking in you is the possibility or the confirmation of a assumption that you had that like, I know that there's a complex world going on inside of my cat's brain, but I don't know what it is. And this is like suggesting that maybe my cat wants to go somewhere private to talk right now, you know, like, and you're like, fuck, I always thought that it was trying to tell me that. And now it's telling me that, you know, like, are these intermediary technological devices actually creating language or are they just poking our unending curiosity for language abilities in other creatures, you know, or like intellect, you know, similar to ours and in other creatures? Yeah, well, there's something like when you said the metabolic processes, right? There's like an intention question there, right? You could be, you could learn a lot from the audio, from the sounds that are created from a different species, but it would be like the equivalent maybe of like a stomach grumbling or something for us, right? Like a stomach grumbling. If you were using these approaches, you might say, oh, that's how the human communicates that it's hungry. You know, if like this, if, if everything that was coming out of the voice otherwise seemed meaningless, but it's not how we communicate that there's a correlation, but it's not a form of communication. It's making me think of like some future study or technology that like over time compares the sort of like sonic element of the, of like an animal's behavior and compares it with that metabolic process and then uses some sort of AI to like decode the relationship between the two of them Mm -hmm. sort of like patterns of that's like essentially what they're doing right like a lot of this still relies on just human observation and stuff like that like when you can infer realistically that like this is what the animal is pretty much expressing because people who do live closely like with animals have a systems and like they have an idea of these things already of course certain animals are harder to study than others though right I mean, one of the main things is just like differentiating between the sounds of like many animals. So actually this in this field, one of the big things that's been suggested this year is actually that bioacoustics is one of the best ways to test for biodiversity, like the levels of biodiversity in a given area. 
so which is just like kind of unrelated to this conversation but a way it's just because they're able to differentiate that this is coming from a different source each of these sounds is coming from a different source and it's just using the software that they're able to measure it and, it, and people are suggesting it may be better than other like ways of observing that there are many diverse species in a given space just a live feed of audio from the jungle i would listen to that instead of white noise that makes me think about you know the impact that the first photo of the earth had on society Mm. like the first time that we could see ourselves on the little blue dot like that it created some type of i don't know supposedly grand realization of like our mortality and our coexistence and all this kind of stuff like i wonder if the sound and the advancement of bioacoustics could have an experience like what Miranda's having with her cat, but for all of us with, you know, other than human life. If I can hear what's happening in this tree next to me, would I want to cut it down? You know, if I could infer about an emotional state or, you know, a creative spirit, would I want to cut it down? You know, like, could it have that type of moral causation or something. I don't know what the word would be, but you know what I'm saying? Like, could it create that in us? It kind of reminds me of these videos I've been seeing on Instagram a lot recently where people are like hooking up little sensors to mushrooms and then mixing that uh, in creating like electronic music through the sound waves of mushrooms. And I do think that the, the primary like emotive or affective like impact of that is realizing the intelligence of these of plants if you could layer that out across like different animals, like how does that change our way of understanding and, and empathizing with like more than human species? Yeah, I know one of the the artists that you have mentioned, who's also based in Toronto, actually called Tosca Terran. She basically designed these um, sonic systems hooking up with mushrooms, myceliums to listen to their activities. I remember in one of her podcasts, she mentioned how different reactions that the public has given to this kind of sound insulation that she made. And actually, I made a thesis to sonify the East within two different kind of cultural East. And even in both exhibition, Tosca's exhibition and my tech exhibition, some visitors even teared up because they, they realized how powerful these microorganisms are. And they feel a really deep empathy with them while listening to how they feel. For example, if they're really starving from sugar, <laughs> glucose, or um, they're dried out without nutrition, or they're just really happy. So I think it's pretty powerful with giving the kind of the sound or agency to these microorganisms. It reminds me, Rob, of that exhibit that we went to several years ago when you could lie on the ground and you heard the sound of a glacier melting. And I found that to be very impactful. I remember you did not. So maybe my theory about it creating a type of empathy and consciousness isn't going to work. You know, if I can't convince Rob, who can I convince? But uh, I was just tired of melting heart. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But it does. It does remind me of that. I think, Miranda, your point about agency is interesting, too, because then this makes me question like how far does this go and like are we infringing on the privacy of these more than human other than human creatures by listening to them when they didn't make their sounds loud enough for us to hear them in the first place i mean never mind the animal just the idea of what's possible now in terms of like what this means for like spyware yeah where it's like can is everything just 
so easy to hear now if you have the right technology like you could be in a crowded young and dundas square whispering to someone yeah something and someone can pinpoint you and listen to it at this point like if that's what these microphones with these software systems are doing or you think about these other like commercial applications like people in agriculture listening in on like the emotions of cats mm. and then figuring out like oh this is the ideal time to separate the mother from the, the calf or you know all of these like sort of deleterious like ways that the same technology could be applied understanding the emotions of animals like can produce this like beautiful effect but also is more likely when it's commercialized to basically create like really dark future yeah the idea that it's like monitoring animal welfare could be a really good thing for animal welfare or it could become like just a really easy way to justify killing animals it's we can tell based on this pitch it's the lowest metabolic something something so it's in the state of least stress so like let's kill it now like yeah there's something a little bit off-putting about like how that gets applied isn't that a thing though? Like I swear there's there's a thing mm -hmm. about the amount of stress that an animal goes through and how it impacts the meat once it's dead and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've heard stuff like that. And I think some of that's related to this same field actually with like, they've done some of these studies with pigs and things like that. Well, it's like Temple Grandin, who is this um, autistic like agriculture designer who basically designed these systems for killing animals that were she called like empathic because she as an autistic person could empathize with the experience of like being overwhelmed by sensation and feeling like separated from her family and yeah there is like this idea that you know the, the least stress that you're under produces greater taste because exactly yeah because stress releases all sorts of toxins into the animal that makes it like more firm and less tasty okay so getting into just like the stakes of this as a signal um, it seems to be developing rather quickly right now. There seems to be quite a few studies on it. There's obviously consumer apps. So like that's, you know, one of the implications. We can get to know our pets better, maybe. The animal welfare is another piece. The sort of like understanding animals. I guess like the, the other one that, you know, we didn't quite, I guess maybe Sam, you were alluding to was just like animal reproductive states, for example. That seems like something that would be like really abused. And when you think about like the privacy thing, it's like if we start to understand that animals are feeling flirtatious or doing things like that, but we are breeding them, like that all sounds very ethically tricky. But like if the alternative is doing the same thing, the same practice as we do without any ability to communicate, that's another thing. Um, the thing is still is that this isn't communication. This is just listening. Okay. So there is though with the Wales project, I think they are because of they believe in they're finding certain like phonemes or like grammatical parts, right? that they are trying to construct things that like whales aren't necessarily saying, but like might understand. So, I mean, these are the experiments. It's so, I think it's so early and who knows, but yeah. they're working on like trying to play with that, like actually make constructions that aren't yet in nature, but could mean something. Who knows what that is? That's, it's interesting though. Anytime we point out the like ethical problems with, with something or like the surveillance part of it, I'm just like, oh, well, that's where this is going. Like, that's just like, what happens in my brain, you know, like this technology gets better and better and cheaper and cheaper. And, and if like local DJs we know are using this to listen to mushrooms, like it's only a matter of time before advertisers are using it to listen to us talk at the mall so they can blast whatever into our AirPods or whatever, you know, like it's, yeah. that's just like where this is going to go, you know, not to be like cynical, but that's like, you know. 
this was a maybe what gets my attention the most is the question of as a scientific breakthrough is this like on the same level as like the microscope something that allows us to see into the natural world in ways that we in this case here into the natural world you know to, to understand it in ways that we just otherwise couldn't as a as a scientific instrument i definitely think so especially how we we are using ultrasound these days um, for animals, even for different kind of sounds that animal are sounding, that we our hearing abilities cannot match. Or, for example, the baby's diagnostic of pregnancy of wheels using these ultrasonic device, which is definitely beneficial in terms of rescuing some of the animals that are endangered. I sometimes also get into the ethical questions, but also reminds myself all the time that there definitely can be ethical uses of different technologies and really depends on the lawmakers, how they rule, rule out the implementation of certain technologies. I don't know if we're at the signal or noise section yet, but to me, it feels like we're just translating other things into sound right now, or we're listening to sounds that we maybe not could have always heard. It just doesn't feel timely or like novel right now. It feels like this has been happening for a little while. And so I don't really see what the innovation is that's happening right now. Like listening to, you know, sounds beyond the frequency of our ears, that's an innovation, but that had happened a while ago. Even like the meow talk thing, I'm like, it's kind of just gesturing at a possibility. It's not necessarily confirming anything yet. It's not allowing two-way dialogue. It's it's just gesturing at something. And I like what it's gesturing at, but I I don't know. I don't know if I see this as like an innovation right now. I feel like there was an innovation before and there will be in the future, but I don't see what you're bringing in as like a particular signal right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm jumping the gun on that section, but... I wonder if, like, the innovation has to do with processing power and, like, the sheer volume of data. Yeah, I think it's the scale piece for sure. Like, we were already listening to animals and then trying to, like, infer causation of, like, certain modes of communication. But it's just now that, like, the scale of processing is so much larger that we can develop more of, like, a generative model rather than, like, a sort of, like, heuristic-based model. And it's not the same, but we did see translation software, you know, across human languages, like just improve in like this meteoric way in, in our lifetimes from, you know, English, French dictionaries to, yeah, yeah. to this like Google Translate. So, you know, there's a question of like, could there be a Google, like whether it's a signal, could there be a Google Translate for that number of species, you know, for like infinite species? You know, I think that to me, the more interesting question then is just like, it's like, is translations probably wrong? The idea that it's language, I think, is what's making it difficult for you, Sid. And I, I think I agree with you on that. But I feel very confident that there's something to be learned here and that it might be more about learning like their different like modality of experience of these different animals, like that we, we still might come up with like a better understanding of how a particular organism experiences the world through this type of work. So signal and noise said, I'll go back to you and see if I convinced you or not, since we knew it was noise two minutes ago. I still feel a little bit reluctant to agree that what you just said is actually what's happening in this signal. 
Mm. I feel like that's like what you would do in with this technological uh-huh. ability. But is that like what is actually happening here? I don't, I'm not sure. Mm. I would like to see a cool artistic interpretation of like how, you know, spatial and bodily communication happens in different species. But is that actually what's happening in this signal? I don't know. I like this. My like summary of that is like the more money, more problems here. It's like more AI, more advertising. Like (laughs) that's like what it's always going to come down to. It's like (laughs) great scientists do all this work. And as a result, you know, we get spied on and sold to. Yeah. Like, but I do agree with what Miranda said that like, you know, it's like both things can be true. You know, there can be like altruistic and creative and in positive uses of this technology. But like alongside that, there will be surveillance, you know, like increased surveillance like that will just happen. But there can be other things as well. You know, Sam, what do you think? Signal or noise? I'm going to make the obvious dad joke that it's noise. Someone does it every time we have a audio themed. <laughs> Great. Yeah. But I think it's a signal. Mm-hmm. What do you think it's a signal of? I think it's a signal of humans using noise detection as another mode of interpreting the physical world um, in a way that probably, of course, has been like is, is a part of human culture, but is not, I think, been a on the level of like science and technology. So I see it as like a gateway for greater like tech understanding of the sonic universe. Yeah. Somehow deciphering new meaning. Yeah. Miranda, signal and noise. I think it's a signal. I think the interspecies communications could be really precious for species conservation and also saving, rescuing the endangered species in the future, which is extremely important for the ecosystem in the water or on the land. And I think lots of technologies right now that are developing, only for a few I know of, is helping out with medical-related works for the species using, I would say, sonic from the animals, even detecting babies or detecting any tumors inside the animal. So I think it would be interesting exploration on the technology and our understanding to the sonics of animals and how we see them as a part of us. All right, Sam, what's your weakest signal? Okay, so bringing some dispatches from the crypto worlds uh, based on a, a paper that was written by Vitalik Buterin. He wrote a piece called Soulbound, which was basically a kind of riff on a concept from the world of Warcraft. Basically, he observed how like in World of Warcraft, you, you can only win so, like the best tools by doing those like really difficult stunts. And it's like girl guides. Like girl guides. <laughs> so he basically was like, okay, well, I wonder if we could apply that same concept to like NFTs and basically create sort of like a non-transferable NFT, something that's like tied to identity and like the actual tasks that you've done so that instead of it being this like transferable thing that's just like you have a bunch of money therefore you can virtue signal in all these important ways it's like you have gone to this university you've participated in this conference like you've done certain like set amount of like you've created this startup whatever it is and that these sort of non-transferable NFTs could be used as a form of like credentialization that could be used to sort of move away from the hyper-financialized layer of like what crypto and NFTs 
have become. So that was like the original sort of like base layer. And then Glenn Weil, who is like a researcher at Microsoft in the office of the CTO, teamed up with Vitalik um, and this researcher named Pooja Allhaver and tried to figure out like how they could broaden that idea to like to solve problems around like social identity. And they were responding to the idea, to the fact that like in the current sort of mode of identity, you receive an identity from like a third party. So from like a government that issues an ID or uh, Facebook that says like you are X person and instead sort of move towards like an idea of like social identity, which is sort of corroborated by your peers. These like soulbound tokens could basically be like a sort of base layer that helps to facilitate that, which could solve problems like under-collateralized lending. So like not having to put money forward when you to get a loan, you could use it for like social recovery for like crypto wallets. So like instead of like having to have a specific public key, you could give like a key to a bunch of your friends and that could be used to like restore access to your wallet if you if you lost the key and that it could even solve like problems like deep fakes or like establishing the provenance of like art and imagery that like having a bunch of people who are sort of like confirmed humans because of their sort of web of social interactions and based on these like soulbound tokens that they've received from their peers that that could become like a basis on which to like look at deep fakes and say like this is not true for x reason and sort of like decentralized verification system for what would start in like the blockchain and cryptoverse and sort of spread out to larger sort of like tech layer of how we do identity on the internet so yeah that's the concept signal or noise <laughs> you mentioned how it could be like a way of verifying or like evidencing different types of credentials. And that was interesting to me in just like a couple specific use cases about people moving from one country to another and needing to get like university degrees all over again because their degree in whatever country is not recognized in the country they're in now. That seems really interesting to me. Like if it could be like a credible system of being like, no, I really do know poli sci or whatever the fuck because I learned it in this country and this you know, token thing somehow verifies that you would still need all of these institutions to agree with each other. But regardless, that's where my head went. And then the second was credit, like having moved from Canada to the U.S. and now back to Canada, like in the U.S., your credit doesn't transfer over. So like you're basically like a 16 year old again, credit wise. And that's really annoying. So if there was like a way of, you know, creating this like uh, additional layer of uh, credentialing saying that like, oh, I have a good credit score over here. Like y'all just need to believe it over here. And this is the tool. It still doesn't solve like the actual like bureaucratic processes that need to go into like getting all these institutions to agree that these things are equivalent. But that's the thing that it made me think of. Credit is kind of one of the key like use cases that they mentioned for it because like credit systems for exactly like the reasons you mentioned, are often heavily biased uh, towards marginalized populations. And that their argument in this paper is basically that there's like a ton of really important information, which is like your social connections, the schools that you attended, the like web of sort of interconnections that make your social worlds are actually like extremely important information in terms of evaluating creditworthiness. And that like the current system, which is like run through the banks and like uses all sorts of like strange 
rules that are for the sake of the larger institutions that ignore so many parts of like what your social identity actually is completely gloss over that. And that benefits like typically like white middle-class educated people and and, and impacts other people. The other thing that this reminds me is I feel like I read maybe Friends with Benefits does this, but that they were trying to figure out a way to like quantify the value of these like traditionally unquantifiable skill sets, like um, raising a different point of view in a meeting or giving really good feedback, you know, or a critique. Like those are kind of similar to what you're saying, Sam, about like, you know, aspects of your social identity, aspects of your social influence that are often not really able to be made credible in a tangible sense, I guess. Maybe it could help with that. I got a lot of opinions. I want those to be NFT'd. I think the public might value more of individuals' lived experience than what has been shown or have been recognized publicly with different kind of school system or educational systems that sometimes could be really exclusive. But I do have a quick question. With this kind of system, who would be the person that authorizes or providing the credentials and analyzing your background, for example. <laughs> I think it's like supposed to be a network of like peers as well as like organizations. So like universities could like issue these NFTs as well as like, yeah, your peers, similar to like how on LinkedIn you have like colleagues who verify certain skills that you have. It would be like this kind of system, but for but like decentralized for different aspects of your identity that could be verified in different ways. Somehow it, I was like about to say that like it just sounds like all the worst features of LinkedIn being like more hardwired or something. The worst part of LinkedIn is the posts. That's the worst part of LinkedIn. <laughs> but the uh, endorsements that people do of each other. Oh, sure. Yeah. Close second, probably. Fair. Do people do use those actually? I've never used that, but yeah, continue. Occasionally, I think. But then like badges and just all of those things, right? I mean, for me, as always, I'm sort of like, how much does blockchain add to the way we do these things already? Having badges and like earned credentials was, I was just kind of like, no one cares. Like, But I, I'm also probably of the camp of like, no one cares if you own the, a particular NFT that's gone up in value or whatever and you're and you're rich but i you know i'm wrong about that people do my no my no one is like eminem telling moby that no one listens to techno whatever. <laughs> it's an obscure reference i guess just like the social id thing i don't know do we have the huge problems with that now and that that's what actually solve like how do you verify explain what you mean when you say i mean we obviously have problems work. with people uh falsely representing who they are or whatever Will this actually solve all of that? Like, how do you know who's on the other side? Does that miss the point of the, uh, Well, I think the way you know... Is I confirmed think, well, I think that's exactly the point. It's like in a sort of internet ecosystem where people are creating like tons of burner accounts mm. and like misrepresenting themselves. And there are anons all over the place. How do you create a system where like you can actually verify that this person like is a real person? And I think like the context, at least the sort of like crypto community context is like what they call civil resistance, where there are in certain DAOs, like people will create like hundreds of accounts and distribute like funds across all of them. And then they can 
because like votes in a, in an out are connected to the amount of users and the funds distributed by those users, they can sort of bend different policy, like different governance things in their direction. And this becomes like a way of sort of preventing that action because the identity is verified by peers. Yeah. So this is just like the constant crypto problem though, right? But that, yeah. So getting like a permanent, I am not a robot badge. Well, I would say outside of our specific context, there's definitely a need for alternative forms of verifying your identity. Like that's definitely a huge problem around the world is that people don't have access to legitimate forms of identification Mm -hmm. or forms of identification that are perceived as legitimate wherever they're going to, you know? So that's definitely a problem, but we shouldn't trust engineers. Yeah. I don't know if this is solving it, but that's, I mean, that's definitely a problem for sure. The direction that my brain is going in, in terms of what this is signaling is a greater appreciation or desire for like nuanced interpretations of career progression. Like LinkedIn recently introduced the ability to put, I think, maternity leave and like life break in your timeline on your career section of LinkedIn, like on your little like roadmap thing. You can put like you are birthing a child or raising a child or whatever, or you were taking a break for whatever reason. And you can add that in as like legitimate sections. And to me, the part of this signal that connects to that idea is like validating or like, yeah, I don't know, valuing alternative forms of professional input or social value or something like that. Like, oh, I'm I'm someone who gives a lot of feedback in a meeting, you know, and that's a good thing. And maybe that's a badge I could earn. And therefore that could be, you know, considered as part of my overall value, not just the fact that I was this job for five years. You know, I also have these badges and that means that I'm worth more, you know. I mean, the credit score example that you mentioned, Sid, and I've heard so many people who have lived in the U.S., say the same thing like especially when they're trying to uh, rent a home seems like that's kind of where i start to take it and you know without going too extreme into the sort of like digital nationhood area and sam i know it's an area you've been exploring but that's like the potential for many of the current features and responsibilities of nations to become like outmoded and just taken over by a trusted distributed network is kind of the big signal potential I see here credit score is becoming some more universal type of system because it does seem odd right it's just like and why just because Canada and the U.S. like didn't get it together basically it doesn't seem like it should be like an intractable problem yeah but there would still be the ability to like no we don't accept that in this country or whatever but you would seem like in nations that have relationships like that at least you'd be able to accept something like this soon I don't know I definitely think the badges will add certain values towards how people compare the value systems, badges and no badges, basically. I think in the bank, they also have asked you age, uh, many different aspects that I may or may not want to directly tell them or spend an hour discussing my personal life. I think badges could also be another way to represent certain credentials that you don't have to explain or um, can protect yourself for in certain ways. One of the cases that are made for like why put it on the blockchain, the reason is like the use of what's called like a zero knowledge proof, which is basically like a way of verifying that like a person meets the certain information requirements of like a set list without disclosing like the way in which they meet those requirements. 
So you can like verify like I am above 18 without showing that I'm 21 or something like that. And that like blockchain and the sort of like wallet based like store of information version of that allows for that type of exchange of information with um, in a way that like, you know, a driver's license does not. I like that a lot. I I like that point that you brought up, Miranda. Like it just reminds me of like the process of getting a visa for the states as well, which is also can be a very harrowing experience. And it really depends on the subjectivity of like your border officer, if you get the visa or not, you know, if you're allowed into the states or not. And like totally they could just be having a bad day and then you don't get in versus like with this system, you know, that would help ease some of that pain. But that leads me to the overall question of like, why do these like opaque systems of verification and value exist? It's like that, then it's to preserve hierarchy. The U.S. likes that it's difficult to get a visa, you know, like Harvard likes that there's a mysterious value to Harvard degrees. They don't want it to be seen as transferable and equal to anything else because that's where its value as like basically a luxury good comes from. Yeah, but that's where I'm like, this won't solve that. No, it won't solve that. It might even make it like worse because I mean, really, right now you can just say, yeah, I went to Harvard or whatever. And what I meant was I went to I went to the campus one time I visited in Boston, you know? Yeah. And I mean, these things like they matter to some people and not to others and like mostly to the people who have that PhD or whatever or pay big money for that like MBA or like executive MBA. But like, I don't know how many, I think people are caring less and less about prestige degrees. I think people are, but I think institutions aren't. (laughs) That's not going to make them more relevant. No, it's not. But like, you know, the main reason to get a, not the main, one of the main reasons to get a degree is so that you can get a visa to go to the States. You know, like you can't get a visa without getting a degree. Yeah. And I guess what I'm getting at is that like, like ultimately all of those things matter when it's dealing with like automated checklists and stuff but when you're dealing with human beings like your credibility more often comes from uh, like can you actually like talk the talk of the degree you supposedly have do you appear to be someone who is credentialed you know and that comes in that like it's not really can you talk the talk or not it's like how are you talking how are you looking what are the you know like how are you presenting to this person and how do they interpret how you present do you look like someone who went to harvard or are you lying to me do you look like someone who should come to the states or are you a danger? You know, like I guess I'm meaning just like if you're a doctor, like a doctor can tell pretty quickly if you're completely making it up or if you know what you're talking about, you know. I wonder if it's a signal of like for the last sort of 150 years, we've relied on trusted institutions to like verify things like identity. We've needed governments like and large institutions to say like this person is meets this criteria. And I think the word NFT, anytime it gets thrown around, becomes kind of like a bit of cringy and people like don't want to accept that there's any value in it. But it's like if you stop thinking about it as an NFT or as a badge or as a credential or just as like a piece of information that's stored in like. Sort of like be having a bunch of other relevant pieces of information written in the back of your passport or something. Basically. And that becomes like a mode of like storing information about your identity that like may or may not be public. And it seems like a distributed mode of doing that that's like spread across like your actual social network and not driven by like an authority source might be a better way of like thinking about doing this type of activity if like in a sort of, certainly in a post-national world, but like even in a world that's like moving in that direction slowly. I don't know if it'll be better, but I could see it happening. I just feel I see it becoming very tied to like people's freedom of mobility and things like that. And I guess that's that. And whether it's a good step for that or a bad one, 
who knows? That's another question. And I think with that kind of badges and more credentials, we also leave more online footprint of each of us in a way it could be good or not. But I know that for some people dealing with funerals, they take way longer time to figuring out how to take out all of these credentials and information online or your uh, footprint online. So let's signal a noise. Sid, what do you think? I do think that it's a signal. I'm going to stick on my little like work career path interpretation of this, that I think that the badges relating to specific skill sets or maybe more non-traditional professional abilities that are not traditionally seen as like credible, you know, I think it, this system of like somehow verifying those or, or creating value around them is interesting to me. And I have been seeing things related to that in other kind of more mainstream spheres like LinkedIn, you know, like acknowledging that there is value that you took like, a, a, you know, a maternity or a paternity break, you know? So I'm going to say it's like somehow like a, an echo of that signal or this is a s- echo of that or something like that. They're loosely connected somehow. Hit signal. I like that. Miranda, signal or noise? I think it's a weak signal. Mm-hmm. I I agree with with this topic. Firstly, I thought of some of the exams that I've done on LinkedIn just to pass certain credentials. I have the badges. Sounds stupid, but actually for some of the interviews from the recruiters, they actually want you to finish all of the works in order to prove you can use Excel, for example. Uh, so I think it could become a bigger signal with more governmental support or international kind of recognitions of the systems, but would be a little hard to really use this in a crypto system to, to attract people to use it all the time or being recognized by big org- organizations or institutions. Yeah, I might get that though. I'm going to go noise. I might very well be wrong for some of the reasons I mentioned before. I do see some good meanings, but I just, for some reason, really imagine this badge that says like, had 50,000 followers before my account got deleted. That is like the, the main use case that people are going to want to prove about their identity online. So uh, I'll go noise for that reason. Sid, what's your weakest signal? Okay, we're going to talk about lacrosse. I found this guy on TikTok. He came up, his username is the Drip King. And he, can I share my screen right now and play you guys one of his videos? A bunch of people were like, Drip King, can you please make water polo drippy? Guys, are you crazy? Of course I am. I'm the Drip King. We need our swim cap, our drippy goggles, our armbands, our leg sleeve, and of course, we need an arm sleeve and some drippy eye black. And guys, you will be the drippiest water polo player of all time. Just imagine this drip in the pool. Nobody will be able to stop you. Let me know in the comments which sport the Drip King should bless up next. Drip over skill. He does this with like all different types of sports and activities. You can see these comments over here. Make cross country drippy, make swimming drippy, make boxing drippy. And it's the same thing over and over again. He just like put eye black on, which is like, you know, the black lines around their face and wear an arm sleeve and a leg sleeve and like cut off the sleeves to your shirt. And there you go. You're drippy, you know, and it's so funny. It's sat. It's satire. Like he acknowledges it's satire in some ways. He's like, you know, what he said at the end, like the the drip over skill kind of thing. Like it's all a joke, you know. Mm-hmm. 
But this is an aesthetic that comes from lacrosse. So I saw this and I was like, what the fuck is this about? I don't know anything about lacrosse. And then I went into a lacrosse rabbit hole because I was trying to find a signal related to sports because I'm thinking a lot about sports these days. So I was like, okay, what the fuck is going on with lacrosse? Like, why does this guy have, you know, 300,000 followers and 14.3 million likes? You know, he's like a maybe 21 year old who plays D1 lacrosse somewhere in the States. You know, he's not a professional athlete. And so that just led me on like a whole rabbit hole about what's going on in lacrosse right now. So just as like a very quick summary, lacrosse is like one of the fastest growing sports in the States right now. The participation is just growing significantly like year over year. It is a sport played more by young people, like age, like kind of 17 to 20 than any other age demographic. Um, in the past couple of years, there's been the development of a new league, a new lacrosse league called the PLL, the premier lacrosse league that was created by this guy, Paul Nabil. I want to say his name is Paul Nabil. It doesn't hurt that he's hot as hell, but he is considered the LeBron James of lacrosse. And he made the PLL, which was a direct competitor to the main other lacrosse league, which was called the MLL. And two years after establishing the PLL, the PLL bought the MLL, um, which had been around for like 20 years. And the reason that the PLL is so dominant is because it's adopting the same business model as like the UFC, tennis and golf, meaning that it's touring. It's not, it doesn't rely on teams related to geographic locations. They just have like a set of like, I think it's eight teams and they tour cities where they they know they'll have audiences. Um, they also pay their athletes like th- at, in the 2019, it was like $35,000, which the MLL, which was previously like kind of the only other pro or maybe the main pro lacrosse league paid their, their athletes like $10,000 or maybe even less than that. So the PLL is paying their athletes at least $35,000 gives them benefits, which they didn't have before. And they get equity in the league. So it is actually a league partially owned by the players. And Paul, up until last year, was a player himself. His prime was in like 2010 to 2013, but he's continued playing in the PLL that he made and just retired recently, but is going to continue to run the PLL. He, I'm going to drop him in the chat because he's beautiful. This also, it also counts as part of the signal because he's like this charismatic face of this sport and he's like thoughtful and he's well-spoken and he's handsome and he's gentle. And like, he talks about lacrosse in a way that is trying to defy the very lax bro uh, stereotype of like a privileged white guy, which is what this drip King is kind of like mocking is this like super privileged white guy, bro, who like doesn't care about anybody else and is like super violent because lacrosse is a very violent game. But yeah, the PLL operates differently than that. And I think that it is interesting, partly based on their model, but that they've also raised a bunch of funding from like Joe Tsai, like the CEO of Alibaba, um, but also Uninterrupted, which is LeBron's media company and like a bunch of other funders. Like they, I think they're on Series D now. And they also got a deal with ESPN. So they're broadcast through ESPN and they have a media partnership with them where they're going to make content similar to how the UFC makes content about individual fighters before a big UFC match. And it's this whole, like there's a plot and there's like all these vlogs and whatever Mm -hmm. it's going to, it's similar like that with PLL too. And so all of this is happening with lacrosse, you know, kind of just like giving you the context started with drip King as my, I don't know, entry point into the single, all of this context about what's going on with lacrosse. And then what I'm interpreting of this signal is like, so lacrosse is already growing. That's not the signal. 
What I think could happen is a similar thing to what has happened with tennis and golf recently, which is that they've had this kind of resurgence amongst a young, not so privileged demographic. And along with that comes interesting like lifestyle brands like there's Racket Mag, which is like a cool, beautifully designed tennis magazine just only in print. Palm Society and Wim Golf are also examples of both tennis and golf brands that are aimed at like young 20 to 30 year olds who are like trendy and cool and live in cities and never and didn't grow up playing tennis or grow up golfing. And I think something could happen in the lacrosse world as well because it has the same stereotype that it's countering. It can be for a larger demographic of people. A case in point being that it originated with Native Americans in Canada, you know, like it could return back to being mm. um, a sport that is embraced by a wide variety of demographics. And this kind of like clothing fashion entry point that I'm seeing through Palm Society, Wim Golf, Racket Mag, etc is interesting to me as like maybe a parallel could happen in lacrosse. Cool. Thank you for taking us on that journey. There's a lot of signals in there, I think. Of the pieces, the one that actually like stood out the most as maybe being the most sort of like novel and important was the equity in the league that players are getting. Yeah. Because that's not typically something you think of happening um and i don't even know if it's like even allowed technically in like the nba and stuff like that no i think it's not actually i think you're no, not allowed to there. own part of the team maybe you could be promised future ownership but even that maybe has to happen like behind the scenes not on your contract or whatever mm -hmm. and when you look at those leagues a league like the nba that's just like many multi-billion dollar industry right now the players today are doing amazing but there was generations before them. And like, you know, there was a generation in the 90s when the game really grew. And there was a generation before that. And there was players who put in all of that work so that players today could get paid the way they are. Mm -hmm. And it would be really cool if they had had some equity in the league. And it kind of changes that. It's like the motivation to grow the sport by having players have a little bit of equity like i can see probably has a lot to do with why they were over able to overtake the competing league yeah they were able to entice like all the interesting exciting players from the mll to come to the pll because of the increase in pay but also because of paul rabiel himself he mm. like he's called the lebron james of lacrosse because mainly partially because of his like kind of star quality etc but he's the only person really in lacrosse that's able to make a living out of it um, because the salaries are so low, but because he was able to take this entrepreneurial lens on it, he got all these sponsorships and deals and other revenue streams, et cetera. So people really believed in him as part of the PLL. So that's also why they came over. But yeah, I think like to your point, Rob, the athletes partial ownership of the league itself is a really fascinating part of this story. It also connects to the kind of cultural sensibility shifting within the PLL, within lacrosse, and that they're aware of the labor movement that's happening right now. And that there is like the, the highest positive sentiment about unions that there's like ever been in history. You know, there's like record highs about that right now. Meanwhile, the MLL wasn't allowing their athletes to unionize, you know? So like they're aware of these cultural sensibilities that are dominant within lacrosse and within professional sports and within mainstream society. And they're actively challenging that with their kind of branding, brand positioning, business model, et cetera. Do you think the touring aspect is a big part of it? Or do you think that's more of like an economical way to do it at a certain point 
like as you're growing the league? I think it's like actually an intelligent observation about how sports fandom is changing. Mm-hmm. I think that sports fans are not necessarily as like, what would the word be for like nationalistic before your specific Regional. city? You know, like, yeah, like that type of thing. I don't think sports fans are like that anymore. Sports fans are really interested in kind of the individuals. And so you don't necessarily need a home team. You know, you mm-hmm. like this particular person and you want to see them play, but you don't care if they're from Toronto or they're from San Francisco or whatever. And I think also with seeing that social media is the main technology that's going to allow lacrosse to transform into like a top five sport social media is so diffuse, you know, you don't have to rely on a regional TV network to pick up your games, you know, like if you actually make it, yeah, if you make it available on social media, you know, a larger audience could reach it or a more diffuse audience could reach it, especially for kind of a non-mainstream sport like lacrosse, you know. Another thing that's interesting about their kind of their media model is that they're effectively a media company as well, just like how the UFC is, like they create their own media around the athletes. In contrast to like the NBA or I think the NFL as well, probably MLB two and MLS is that PLL records its games and makes the highlights of the games open source to the athletes themselves. So the athletes can use that content to promote themselves and build up their own individual profiles versus like NBA players aren't allowed to use that content. It's owned by the leagues. So it really kind of, again, is connected to this kind of labor movement and the understanding that people love individual athletes now more than they love teams. On that point, is that a good thing overall? Or like that might be like a much bigger signal, like just beyond the topic we're getting at here about the way that tribalism works or the way people identify with large groups or not. And I am not someone who's like into the idea of like going to a sports game and like being part of that fandom or whatever but every time i do go to that i'm like kind of like oh wow like there's a lot of people here who really care about being part of this Mm. you know what i mean and like that's what it's about first Mm. and like i think that's a big part of the appeal of sports it's always like i I never really got it which is why i always kind of like observe it but the fact that I, I think you're absolutely right with like younger generation that it's changing. Like people are not fans of teams the way that they were in like our parents' generation. And maybe it's somewhere in between in, in our generation, but like the kids are not, they don't care about like having a team. They care about like the players they love. And is there something like more important there that like, you know, about why that is? Or is that just like a change? I would kind of like, separate a couple of things that you said that the experience of going to a stadium is like a spiritual consuming embodied experience, you know, and that's like profound regardless if you care about the teams that are on the field or not. But isn't it know? always about root? Like, well, I, like there's I, a, just I, a consuming I, I think, feeling I about it. Like, I think it matters. Like it matters that you're a fan of that band and you're like with your tribe. It matters that you're like rooting for the home team. I think it's like, maybe you do root for that team, but your entry point into that team was that player. You know, and I think that that is kind of a product of, of technology. Mm. I think the technology that we have now, like social media, works better for individual promotion than it does for entities. That's like, mm. you know, like the stars on TikTok are not Wendy's, you know, and if they if Wendy's does have a good TikTok, it's because there's an individual fucking weirdo as the face of it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like kind of a product of technology, the way that 
perspectives are shifting towards players over teams. I don't know. I think people still like teams, but I think they like teams because of the players. And I think that that is actually a good thing from my perspective because it gives the players more agency. In the past, players basically had like a fucking slaveholder relationship with like mm. the team but, owners, right? But, okay, but that but that's still in, in like in this, like outside of that as a broad, much bigger picture. You don't you you reject the idea that like people are becoming like less communal or something. I think that's separate. Oh, so you think it's both, but they're just different points. I think it's somewhat connected to like the actual way that the media is chopped up in the sense that like TikTok not only values individuals over like entities, but it also favors like the highlight reel over like the sequence. It's that like, and I don't, I don't have any data to back this up, but I wonder if like people's experience of going to the games is to, like to get the highlights. It's like it becomes more of like an observation of like the feats of human like athleticism in these like intense game moments instead of like a, just winning like with with your peers, you know. It's like everybody in for like the greatest possible feats of humanity. We're all on that team. Well, it's like also if you look at like zoomers, like they're all like just pulling stunts. It's like stunts are yeah, yeah. huge, you know. And it's like house of highlights is like everything. It's not. It's like way beyond sports, even. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if like lacrosse is actually probably a game that's like quite well suited for that type of because of how physical it is and how like explosive it can be phys- like um, in terms of aggression. It's like actually particularly well suited for that type of like content yeah i think there's like so many pieces in in what we're talking about like the more that we talk about it, it's like the media presentation of sports is like its whole thing unto itself it is connected to this though you know like i think that the desire for highlights it connects to social media as well that we want hot takes we want spicy things right we don't want like the long nuanced context you know we just we just want like the hot bit you know because that's what's going to be a great gift to post or whatever the fuck you know rob to your communal point i think that perhaps we have been growing less communal as a society and more atomized i think that that is not an individual bottom up change i think that that is a hierarchical top down like structural and systemic change that is preventing people from congregating communally. Um, This is kind of diverging from the topic a little bit, but like I have been doing so much research about communal exercises and communal movement and all this kind of stuff. It's like as society becomes more hierarchical, um, there is is more stigmatization about like kind of organic ways that people are coming together. And that's been happening since like basically the industrial revolution, even before that. This is just one example of that. And I would say that maybe the reason that people aren't so into going to games is because they're so fucking expensive. You know, ticket prices have been going up and minimum wage has not been. I do want to mention about the national pride in Mm. the sports. Um, I took a course in sports and politics this summer, and they also have mentioned it about how Mandela, for example, has used rugby, which is a white sport game in the beginning, to bring back the unity of South Africa and how they were able to utilize this kind of sport that may not be as famous in the beginning to be something that unite huge group of people. And I think a few years ago for Raptor Games in Toronto, a lot of people, I don't think they were the fan of Raptors in the beginning, but you can see from the parade when 
Toronto team actually got won the game. Lots of people on the street was calling out how the North or Toronto won the game instead of the team Raptors won the game. So I do think that there is a national pride um, mm-hmm. also involved in sports meeting, and also thinking about fashion ideas like the dripping guy. I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting because there were a few kind of trend with the baseball suits in the past, and how baseball was not really famous until lots of people start to wear baseball hat and their suits, celebrating mm-hmm. for their games, wearing the suits of their favorite players, and the sport becomes really famous. And I think that is the start of lacrosse too. Yeah, I think that's what I've been seeing with tennis and then with golf as well is like, how many girls do you see wearing tennis skirts around, you know, Mm -hmm. or like tennis dresses who are not playing tennis? Tennis score. It's like a whole thing, right? And golf is happening like the same thing. Like I put some links in the chat towards some brands that are that are making like kind of modern interpretations of it. But I definitely think the clothing is a big thing. But to your point about like the rugby in South Africa, like I mean, rugby is like a huge sport in South Africa. It's like a really popular kind of key sport over there, you know? So I wouldn't say that it was like a small sport before and then it became very big. It's like super popular in South Africa. And I think that there is something slightly different about like moving together in time and how that creates a type of communal bonding versus nationalistic pride. I think that one is bottom up and one is top down. And I would like challenge if like what was happening with rugby in South Africa was that, hey, we're South African and we play this game and that's where our pride comes from? Or, hey, let's learn to cooperate on a field for 80 minutes, you know, and learning to pass and to share and to call each other's name, it does something. Actually, um, I think the beginning of this kind of game started was only because one of the South African uh, players joined this whole white team representing South Africa because Mandela suggested that and they actually won the games and all that. I think that was the starting point. And also mentioned about how you have visited that more of the people of color players joining the lacrosse games. That just reminds me of how we have been more deliberately giving agency and providing these opportunities or cultural representations in sports. All right, let's jump in into signal and noise here that i guess framing it as this new culture and business of lacrosse as a signal for something changing about the world of sports and beyond so if you want to re-articulate or re-summarize that any better yeah i think there's something going on in lacrosse and i think it tells us something about society is shifting (laughs) yeah what do you think sam signal and noise i don't think it's a signal of like although I'd love it to be of like greater awareness of like the rights of players and like their, and bringing their own, the support of players into the imagination of like what makes a sports league thrive. I think it's actually just a evidence that like the best social media strategy is like a decentralized <laughs> social media strategy. And that like, actually instead of like having an, like a centralized network of like media that's run through ESPN that blasts it out to like televisions, like giving all of your players access to promote their own content and like grow their own followings has the effect of like looping a larger net of people into the sort of larger matrix universe that is lacrosse. 
and that while I do think like leading player first as like a media strategy makes a lot of sense. I don't know if I'd see it as necessarily like rooted in a greater respect for uh, unionization and the role of workers uh, been more just as like a savvy approach to what's going to work. Yeah. I have to admit, I feel the same. Like I see this primarily as like a signal of like how these new models represent like huge business opportunities for sports that have like huge growth potential. Like that's the, for me, the big. Yeah. That's what I was actually just going to say as, as you guys were talking was that I feel like just seeing lacrosse uh, implement this strategy so effectively, so quickly gives me hope that like, you know, other sports can reach this type of potential and therefore like a lot of talented athletes could make money off of these things they've been doing for very little money for a long time. You know, yeah, I think there'll be a bunch of stories. Yeah. It just seems like there's so much opportunity. This is going to happen with rock climbing next. Like, yeah. I'm or something. Gonna, yeah. You know, like, or I, like medieval ecstatic dance or like, yeah. Yeah. Miranda signal the noise. I think it's a small signal for me, but I do see a huge potential in, or I see the shift in sport culture and how the athlete has been represented inside um, each league that was able to claim more ethical practice in sports, also including their their rights to um, have their own promotion or agency towards how they make decisions in the league. Mm. I think it's a signal of Sid's future as like mogul of communally owned sports franchises. <laughs> I'll be a sports trend forecaster a sports cultural critic and trend forecaster aren't you already yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying, that's right I'm now <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe i'll i'll own the next alternative sports media conglomerate mm, pick a sport i think i want multiple out of sleeve <laughs> put some eye black on there you go you know, that's yeah. a drip. make it drippy <laughs> broadcast from later <laughs> <laughs>